Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy. It's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. Juliana Blum. Dr. Blum is co-founder and executive vice president of Umicite Incorporated. Dr. Blum, welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. Thank you, John. I appreciate the invite to be here. So this podcast is being recorded in conjunction with the Journal of Immunology and Regenerative Medicine. We thank them for their partnership. Dr. Blum, this story actually from a Regenerative Medicine podcast perspective began 10 years ago when I interviewed Dr. Nicholson, one of your colleagues. Tell us a little bit about the technology that Dr. Nicholson and you and others have pursued that's now being moved from the bench to the bedside. Thanks, John. Yes, Humicide's an exciting organization developing universally implantable regenerative medicine tissues to be used in many different indications. Our first focus is in in vascular indications, and we can produce human acellular vessels for the use in peripheral arterial disease, vascular repair, reconstruction, post-traumatic injury, and as a conduit for hemodialysis access. So tell us a little bit more about this technology. How do you begin to form vascular grafts? It's a complex manufacturing process that we've been able to somewhat simplify and develop into a scaled production system. We start with donated human cells that we isolate from donated tissue. Those cells are then implanted on a scaffold that is inside our bioreactor. That scaffold supports the cell growth for a period of weeks, but after some point in time, the cells form a strong, robust tissue and the scaffold is no longer mechanically robust and degrades. At the end of the process, the cellular tissue is decellularized to remove the donor identity from the grown tissue. And what we have left is a shelf-stable, non-immunogenic, acellular tissue in a size, whether it's diameter or length, that we designate. And that product can then be stored on the shelf and be available for use in the OR at the time of patient need. So what's the shelf life of this material? That's a great question. For a biologic product, shelf life is important. Right now, we have a shelf life of 12 months. We're looking to expand that to 18 months shortly. And by the time that we enter into the commercial space, we're hoping to have validated perhaps even a longer shelf life. We're currently working on qualification and validation studies to support the shelf life of our product. So this company was formed by three women. When you actually formed the company, that was quite an unusual accomplishment. It was. It certainly was, John. Back in 2005, when we founded Humicide, it was myself, Laura Nicholson, and Shannon Dahl. And back then, there were not many, if any, companies that were focused in the regen med space that were founded by women. And in fact, I believe we are the first women-founded company focused on regen med here in the Research Triangle Park area of North Carolina. So why did you choose the Research Triangle Park? We initially founded Humicite in Research Triangle Park because we were a spin-out out of Duke University. And we felt it would be important to stay local and close to the great academic and scientific talent at Duke University, UNC, NC State, Wake Forest, and others that are here in the North Carolina area. 
we stayed in North Carolina for a couple of reasons. One, the rich talent pool we have here, not only from the universities, but from the supporting network of PhD and manufacturing experts here that support other companies and businesses here in the space. But also because we have many employees who have been with us five, 10 or more years. And we realized early on that a true understanding of our manufacturing process and our technology was instrumental in the success of the organization. And we felt like we needed to stay and continue to grow Humicite where the talent began. And we're able to pull from the great pool of people we have around us to continue to expand and grow the organization. So speaking of growing, how big is the organization now? We have about 130 employees here in in Durham, North Carolina. We recently purchased and built out our own manufacturing and research and discovery and corporate office space. So we have about 80,000 square feet of real estate here in Durham, North Carolina, and look forward to continuing to grow as we move into the future. So talk a little bit more about moving from the bench to the bedside. It's easy to say, but I know it's a complicated process. Exactly. I think for any product or technology, moving from benchtop to bedside can be difficult. I think for a new product category or one that's in the regen med space, it can definitely be challenging and difficult. We spent a lot of our time at Humicite in the early years focused on really the science and the technology to be able to successfully grow a new tissue in vitro or in the laboratory setting. And we really went about it kind of in a singular unit fashion. Could we grow one tissue at a time and one individual bioreactor? We knew that we had to prove that we could do it in a small setting, but also continued to think about how do we grow or scale that production to be able to meet the needs of a commercial market someday. So we spent a lot of time engineering and developing equipment, processes, diagnostics that could help take us from a single unit production system to a multi-unit production system. And today we have large bioreactor systems that grow 200 units at a time, setting us up for commercial quantities once we are approved. I think at the same time that we were focused on the science and the engineering of how to develop the technology in a laboratory setting, we were thinking about the regulatory path and the clinical evaluation path of how do we describe the product and the technology to the regulatory bodies, both here in the U.S. with FDA, but also abroad, in a way that helped them understand this new category of product or this new type of product in the regenerative medicine bioengineering space, and how could we help them understand what the product could do once implanted into We spent quite a bit of time collaborating with regulators and experts in the space and coming up with ways to evaluate the safety and efficacy of the product so that we could successfully execute clinical trials to evaluate the product once we had finished our preclinical work. And then I think thirdly, you know, we continued to think about building out the platform in a way that we started with products focused in the vascular space but always knew we had a platform technology or the ability to grow tissues in different conformations, different sizes, in different ways that could help us reach out into other areas, you know, into the urogenital space and into the pulmonary space and other indications and ways that we could use the same acellular bioengineering 
platform to reach multiple different segments of patients. So what's the target for the initial applications? What applications are you pursuing? Our initial focus is in vascular indications. We have ongoing clinical trials in hemodialysis, in vascular repair reconstruction after traumatic injury, as well as peripheral arterial disease. So we've really focused our initial exploration with the use of a six millimeter diameter by 42 centimeter long product that can be used in any of those three indications that I just mentioned and that are under clinical evaluation in phase one, two, or three clinical studies. I think the exciting thing about the product and about the platform is the number of uses or actually unlimited uses that the product might have in the vascular space or even in other tissue areas that may be of need. So you mentioned phase one, two, or three clinical trials. For listeners that aren't familiar, tell us what a phase three clinical trial involves. Sure. And and maybe we could start with what a phase one, two study is, because there is definitely a process of moving from early clinical development to late stage clinical development. Initially, we performed or evaluated the product in phase one, two studies, which were small populations, really demonstrating the safety of the product. We did those studies both here in the U.S. and abroad. And once that data was completed and evaluated by FDA, we were given approval to move into a larger phase three setting where we would evaluate a larger cohort of patients for both safety and efficacy against predetermined endpoints that would compare our product, the human acellular vessel, to a comparator in the field. So what's the status of the phase three trial now? We have two phase three studies in vascular access for hemodialysis, one that currently is enrolling and the other which is finished enrolling, and is under evaluation. And these will be completed when? We expect to have readouts on our phase three study later this year and in 2022. Those two studies are offset by a year or so. Dr. Blum, this is an interesting story. You're plowing new territory. Tell us a little bit more about the challenges in moving to new and emerging technology from bench to bedside. Being innovative is not for the faint of heart. This technology was started by Laura Nicholson in the late 1990s, and we're just now starting to think about completing our phase three studies in clinical development. It's been, you know, almost a 30-year effort that has definitely taken perseverance and focus to get across some of these hurdles in a way that some of the challenges we didn't even know about because systems or processes didn't exist for regenerative medicine or bioengineered products like ours. And I think we saw this across pretty much all aspects of the business. And really, when we looked at those types of challenges, we didn't see them as setbacks or hurdles. We really focused on how do we find a way to collaborate with external partners in the space to help them understand what we had, what we were doing, and how to work together to move these technologies forward to really ultimately get them to patients. And one example I can give you on that is once we had finished proving to ourselves in preclinical work, whether it was benchtop experiments or pivotal preclinical studies, we had to then explain to regulatory 
agencies like FDA and, and others in Europe and other regions what the product was and how it could be evaluated because systems just didn't exist to look at a bioengineered lab-grown tissue. So we spent a lot of time collaborating and speaking with individuals at FDA early and often. And I think we've done that in all aspects of the business, whether it was on the regulatory side, whether it was on the reimbursement side, even thinking about developing a manufacturing facility and how do you go from growing one or two product units at a time to scaling out in a way that we could grow commercial quantities. Those things didn't exist. And so we really had to start thinking about things early and often in order to execute on them when they were needed. The other challenge, I presume, is in the laboratory, you don't necessarily have to follow GMP protocols, but for the clinical trial and commercial application, you certainly do. Exactly, exactly. And early on, it it was easy to do benchtop experiments or to grow tissues in an incubator and, and evaluate them on the benchtop. But as we began to seriously consider and execute the preclinical studies and think about our clinical development, we had to transition to appropriate manufacturing spaces. And we had to think about how do you grow a tissue? How do you put a bioreactor system in an appropriately controlled manufacturing space? And luckily, we're here in the area in in Research Triangle Park where there's a lot of that knowledge and expertise around us. And we really drew on experts in the space to help us develop those systems, those processes, those room requirements. You know, when you think about all of the important manufacturing requirements, nothing is small. You have to really consider all of the ins and outs from the receipt of goods or materials to use in the process to finishing the product and storing it. And so we've put a lot of effort into understanding how we adapt our processes that we started in a laboratory at Duke University to a process that could be audited and evaluated by regulatory agencies and demonstrate that it was being produced under compliant required manufacturing processes. Dr. Blum. Tell us what the future holds for Humicide. I think the future is bright at Humicide, but also in other scientific discovery and research activities around regen medicine and what the potential opportunities are. You know, here at Humicide, we've spent the last 20 plus years focused on developing a reproducible engineering platform that can create off-the-shelf tissues we're hoping to quickly pivot. And once that's accomplished, look at what does that mean for complex tissue systems and even organ systems. And I think what we're going to continue to see is the development and advancement of scientific efforts that make customizable organs a possibility in the future. And I think that's important. I think there is a huge demand on the transplant list for patients in need to get organs. And it would be great one day in the future to say, Organ donation is incredibly important, but we can also help offset some of that wait list by creating organs in a laboratory that can be used at the time of need when patients need it. Our real goal is to continue to advance tissue engineering and bioengineering past the singular tissue and into more complex systems and even organ systems. So this is a very exciting story, both the story to get to where you are today, as well as your vision for the future. I congratulate you and your colleagues for the progress you made, best wishes for the future, and thank you for sharing your story. So we meet again on another podcast. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.